Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name is Carl Truman. I'm here with my regular co-hosts, Todd Pruitt and Amy Bird. And today we have a very special guest, Tom Crumpler. Tom is an attorney who's been in private practice for over four decades, representing people who have been injured and harmed by large institutions. He's also an elder at Emmanuel Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Wilmington, Delaware, which is where I first got to know him. He's a husband of 44 years, father of two with one grandchild, and an avid reader of history. Indeed, his historical reading tastes are rather excellent because I believe he's currently reading one of my books. Oh, no. Uh, And he listens to Mortification of Spin because he needs to do something when he's walking his two Welsh corgis, George (laughs) and Arthur. The reason why we've got Tom on today, though, is his professional interest in prosecuting child sex abuse. Uh, Tom has not only taken on the mighty DuPont family in Delaware, he also has the largest verdict in U.S. history against a church for childhood sex abuse. That was a verdict against the uh, Roman Catholic Diocese of Wilmington. And he's represented over 100 victims in suits against churches, schools, uh, and powerful individuals. Great to have you on the program, Tom. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. First question, how did you get interested in becoming, obviously, you might say a defender of the weak, but what was it about child sex abuse that sort of ignited this passion in you? In my practice, it's the clients who come to you, um, and you don't go out and and look for them. And uh, back in late December 2003, Uh, Someone came to my door. He had been abused decades before when he was a young child by the principal who was a priest of the most powerful kind of Catholic institution in Delaware, uh, Salesianum. And the abuse had been so horrible that he had repressed it all. I mean, literally did not recall it. And it had come back to him really with some of the stuff in terms of Boston, etc. about two years before. And there was a slim legal theory that we had those two years. He had spent the past year going to countless lawyers who'd all turned them down. It was a long shot, Mm -hmm. but that's what we do. We decided to do the long shot. We filed the suit. Immediately, my ethics got attacked. He was uh, brutally attacked. I mean, the the standard thing. Uh, The case uh, went along. We established the, the right that we had for repressed memory. And then we had a trickle. We had a few other cases, a, uh, a Navy flight surgeon who had been abused, who had been a friend of Bo Biden, who actually, uh, late attorney general, actually remembered and talking to me, yes, something happened to Ken, you know, his sophomore year on the soccer team. I never knew really what happened. And later he realized when he came forward, a lawyer down in Georgia who had been abused. And those cases, just a trickle. And in July 2007, Delaware uh, did a progressive thing. They passed a window law, which allowed victims who had been abused years before, but the deadline for filing suit had passed, a two-year period to file suit. 
And we had um, 200 cases that were that filed. Is, and, and, and one of the things in Delaware, the, the legislature didn't even realize, you're a five-year-old kid, you're hurt, uh, you uh, have to file suit in two years. You have to figure out how to get on a bus and hire a lawyer yourself. And window legislations have been in a few cases, a few states, but uh, really, that's what led to all these lawsuits. And it was a journey uh, learning about this. Uh, I had heard about it in the paper, but I was just really amazed about that and learned an awful lot about the Catholic Church. I mean, one of the greatest compliments ever given to me, taking the deposition of the bishop in Syracuse. And he wanted to know when I left the Catholic Church and what seminary I was a priest at. <laughs> because you've got to learn everything about them. Right. Right. Let me ask you this. Obviously, there's been over the over the, the, the last number of years, lots of, of publicity in terms of this problem of child sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church. You know, obviously the situation with Boston and all the research that Boston Globe came up with. There's been a, a, a movie a couple of years ago. Spotlight. Called Spotlight. Excellent movie. Right. I, I, recognize yeah. Yeah. I recognize my clients and I recognize oh, wow. the purpose in that movie. Wow. Interesting. Well, what and, and I don't know if you have done any research along these lines, but any thoughts on how on how widespread the problem might be among Protestant churches? Well, I mean, one thing I think, and I'll say this to ministers, elders, um, concerned people, as a minister, if you have a church of 100 plus people and you look out on Sunday morning, there are a dozen abuse victims there that, I mean, you have um, one out of five girls is sexually abused as a child, one out of 20 boys. So most of the abuse actually happens in the family. It happens with people you trust. I mean, the whole idea of the creepy guy in a trench coat, that almost never happens. Abuse happens in terms of the people that you're closest with. And, you know, in abuse in the church are the most religious families, the parents who trust the youth minister or the pastor to spend time with their young man or daughter. And when that happens, it is just devastating in terms of, first, their faith. The faith of everyone around, very difficult, and uh, it's a widespread problem. I mean, I think if you look in terms of churches, and the one thing I can kind of say, I really appreciate Presbyterian form of government. And if I had any advice to a church how to avoid abuse, I'd say become Presbyterian form of government. And that's true of the liberal Presbyterian church and the conservative Presbyterian church. And talking to other people who do this work around the country, the Presbyterian Church is one of the least likely to be sued because it's not to say they're not abusers, but they catch them and they do something about it. I mean, what has happened in terms of the Catholic Church is there are not that many priests who are abusers, but the priests who are abusers abuse 30, 40, 50, 100 kids, and they do it over a decade. Yeah. And, and the way that the church has moved them around has caused the abuse to be so much more widespread than it might have otherwise even been in that regard. I have a, a very simple question to start off with, and that is what kind of behavior is legally identified as sexual abuse? Because I've heard sometimes people say, well, you know, and it's something that's very concerning, something that would be, I would consider as, as sexual abuse, where people are like, well, that's just experimenting or that's just... You know, maybe a little weird, but not sexual abuse. We filed suit and got recovery from A to Z. I mean, fondling, 
unconsented touching. I mean, um, a child can't consent to anything of that like type. You, yeah, they'll say you're overreacting to something that, like what you're saying, inappropriate touching. Yeah, that is abuse. Now, I mean, in terms of if somebody did that and said, I didn't mean to do it, you're right. not going to have a, right. a law. But this is that, what we've seen is that inappropriate touching is the first step. Sometimes kids fight it and don't go any further. But it's, it's amazing in terms of, uh, I saw some kids who were, later as adults traumatized simply by the fondling and other people who were had anal sex i mean still was a problem but did not destroy their life so each individual is different in terms of how they react to that you'll sometimes hear people say well it's really a problem for the roman catholic church because of their rules about celibacy for the priesthood it's a function of celibacy what do you what do you think of that well, it, it, it's a function of sin and, um, and, and really, when I looked at it, it's due to bad theology in the Catholic Church. What they have, and I looked at in terms of when you say, what is the church to a Catholic priest? It's the priesthood. I mean, there is a gap. They are the church. The congregation are simply the, the customers of the church. There's not that servant mentality at all. Uh, there's a sense of entitlement. I'm amazed in terms of the the priest, um, and there's something in the Catholic doctrine. When they become a priest, they're no longer a human being. And and the greatest fear that the priests have about being caught is not prison; it's being laicized. We had an expert who was a Catholic priest, and uh, he had been a military chaplain, and he said there are a number of priests in Leavenworth lifetime sentences for raping girls, etc., on military basis, but they're still priests that the Roman Catholic Church is very, very reluctant. Yeah, they're to. still mm. under the grace of the sacrament mm. of the priesthood, and so they're okay. Whoa. And so there's that's a fascinating point, and I hadn't thought about it in those terms, that, that the flawed theology of the Roman Catholic Church makes it easy for a predator to excuse and rationalize his, his behavior. Oh, it yeah. is totally. I mean, there's a certain sense of entitlement. There's also in terms of the band of brothers with the priests that they circle the wagons. I mean, that if I had my child with a babysitter and I found out the babysitter who had been a friend of the family had abused my child, my first reaction was, where am I going to get another babysitter or um, what's going to happen to my reputation? But that was really the first reaction of churches. I mean, it's protecting the institution, not, not the child. How often do you see the, co- the cover-up like that that comes along with the abuse? It, 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 it's all the time. It's all the time. And it is, let me just say, there, grace of God, I would go. I mean, I could see it in a church if I were an elder and all of a sudden I found out our youth minister. Your first reaction yeah. is, what are we going to do protect, about it? Protect the protect. brand. Mm-hmm, yeah. It's not the first reaction is, what do I do about this child? I yeah. mean, that, but that's, I mean, that's a sinful reaction, but everybody has that's that. That's a great point. And we, the three of us have talked about this issue before in terms of this kind of impulse to protect the brand when some of these things happen. And it's good that you brought that up because if not by the grace of God, we, we can all be there if we're not careful. That, that kind of impulse to, to protect reputation instead of the first impulse being, what do we need to do for this one who's been victimized? And so many crimes happen. After, you know, whether they're legal indiscretions or just moral indiscretions happen in the wake of this when the actual victim is not cared for. I mean, that's what's been so staggering in the whole Rachel Dan Hollander slash Sovereign Grace thing. 
that you keep waiting for the sovereign grace leaders to express heartfelt heartbreak over the victims and it just doesn't come uh, and it's it's when there's staggering. like no talk about the victims no no well i was going to say that like when you're talking about the priesthood and how that couldn't foster a different kind of thinking a lot of times in protestant churches the pastor is set up to be such an important figure as well that yeah there it does become this brand to cover up or this um we have an informal reputation. priestliness. Yeah, if right. We have our own functioning popes sometimes. Thomas, I actually just finished reading a book by Lawrence Wright. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. and He's written a number of really, really fine books. But one of his early books, I think it was, uh, I think he wrote it in the early 90s or mid 90s, dealt with a case out of California during the 80s where there was kind of this mad rush in terms of the ritual satanic abuse, and you had these kind of crazy claims, and then some of them turned out to be false. There was a unique moment there in the mid-80s, particularly on the West Coast, where all of this started to happen, and there were some overzealous prosecutors and, and that sort of thing. So we know that there is a possibility for false claims. Help us think about that you know, that particular case, and there was a recent book just came out detailed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. showing it wasn't as overzealous. I mean, mm-hmm. the, you know, this is a reaction one way right. and then the reaction against yeah. it. Um, false claims are, they happen, but they're really very rare. And we were very, very careful, and I think most lawyers um, bend over backwards in terms of that aspect, that it is so difficult for a true victim to come forward. Uh, they're going to be attacked. I mean, it is just standard. Uh, the publicity of it, uh, the shame. A everything child else. is not eager to say that their pastor or their priest sexually molested them. And I mean, you know, what, what in my experience, maybe the few times that there is a false claim that gets through is, let's say this priest we know has abused twenty. Well, let's say the Bill Cosby situation, mm-hmm. which we know. All of a sudden, a woman comes forward and says, I was also abused by Mm -hmm. Bill Cosby. Maybe she wasn't, but he certainly abused the other people. Mm -hmm. So uh, the the situation where the one individual for the first time has ever been abused, I mean, there is usually some smoke and fire. And I mean, you know, I always think in terms of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. But even there, I just reading again. He went into the building alone. I mean, you know, that whole Billy Graham, Mike Pence, and interesting enough, they laughed at Mike Pence with this whole idea of never going to dinner with someone with the whole Weinstein Me Too movement. Right. right. People are starting to say maybe there's <laughs> some wisdom scary. there. Yeah. Yeah. Let, me, let me ask you this. In terms of as we think about things like um, statutes of, of limitations, uh, certainly I can think of a lot of reasons why in many legal situations, in many crimes, statutes of limitations can be very helpful and, and wise. How does that begin to break down, though, in terms of child sexual abuse? Where does statutes of limitation and, and the wisdom start to break down in terms of these sorts of cases? I mean, statutes of limitations, and I did, they really came in terms of the commercial context. I mean, that you don't have the records after a while in terms of this. In terms of for crimes, I mean, you know, they said there's no statute of limitations, many cases for murder. This is murder of the soul. As, as a practical matter, for children who have been abused, and especially when you get in terms of teenagers and the shame of men, they can't even think about it until their 30s. And to bring a case, 
it's very hard. I mean, very hard to even prove it. So, I mean, you know, you could say, oh, the person who's being sued, how can I defend myself? Well, the burden of proof is on the person that's bringing it. So I do think that uh, statute of limitations should be abolished for child. And there are ways that you can do to protect the defendant from false claims. What would you say to a parent or even a church leadership where it becomes apparent that a child has been abused sexually and the parent is reluctant to put their child through that process or they think that they can handle it through you know just therapy and maybe they don't want their child to go through all of the cruel treatment that they're going to go through through the court system to get justice well i mean one they may not want to pursue sue the perpetrator but i think there is a obligation right. to to call him out mm-hmm. and if they don't they're going to get survivor guilt mm-hmm. i mean the the case that we got the largest verdict was a case of this young man had had been abused, uh, had actually um, grown up next to another victim who had been abused, and he knew him as a little boy that he would help crossing the street. When when John Vi became 16, he basically broke off the shackles of this abuser and just repressed it. And then one day, when he was in 40s and he was on his third marriage, he picks up the paper and he sees that this little boy has filed suit because of the abuse of DeLuca. And it was just a double whammy because he realized because he didn't come forward, this little boy was the next victim. So, I mean, it's tough love, but they need to at least come forward. It's so sad because they're victims of so many different things, not only the sexual abuse, but then, like you said, the abuse just going through the process sometimes and and being accused. One thing that uh, we have made great strides, I mean, in terms of most prosecutors have therapists and people who can deal with children Mm -hmm. and they're very concerned in terms of not putting them through that Mm -hmm. and taking it slow. How hard is it then to, to get a conviction? Two different things. I do more civil cases, uh, which is much easier. Criminal cases is much more difficult as it should be. It has all the things to protect the innocent. I mean, so it it is difficult. Prosecutors don't want to file it unless they uh, have to. Very powerful people can do certain things. So it's not easy at all. I mean, a, a key thing that you do see that makes a difference is when there has been multiple victims. I mean, that really, I mean, that made the difference in the cases that, that we had. If, if I had had a case of just a one-time abuser with a one-time victim, those cases are very difficult to win. It wants I mean, so many of these kids think that they're alone. They don't yeah. and, understand. Oh, yeah. oh, oh they yeah. totally think they're alone. And they blame themselves, too. They totally blame, totally blame teaches themselves. teaches them to blame themselves, yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. And it's it, this is just our little secret. And what you see, I've seen especially with boys, think to themselves that, um, you know, maybe I'm a latent homosexual. And they then cheat on their wife. I mean, they become total, you know, just to prove their manlyhood. The few homosexual clients that I had of, of abuse, in a sense, they couldn't have any kind of long-term relationship even there. I mean, it's a total loss of feeling of intimacy. 
total loss of believing any kind of authority. I mean, it is uh, substance abuse. Um, It just keeps going on and on. What is the first thing a church needs to do? And by church, I mean, you know, pastor, anybody that that has a position of authority or responsibility uh, within a church, what is the first thing they need to do when they receive a report? First is to see how the child is doing. Second is to try to find out who the allegation is about. And even if you don't believe this person could have done it, I mean, you look in terms of police shooting, they put that policeman on administrative leave. They may continue to pay him and say, hey, you know, we think you're going to be proved innocent. But the first thing has to be the protection of the child. And then it comes a question of, well, what do you say to the public, et cetera? And that becomes more difficult. But again, not to let those people to know, to warn them about mm-hmm. that. I mean, And what's their legal, what's that, what's that church's legal responsibility immediately? Uh, the legal responsibility is to report it to the police. I mean, that's another th- mistake to think, oh, we can handle it individually. You've got to report it to the police. Doesn't it go to a child line? And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Rather than straight to the police, the kind of the, the filtering. But I was going to say every church should make sure they know what their state law is relative to the mandated reporting. And I might just say interesting about the police in many urban areas where the policemen were Irish Catholics, the bishop would say, we're taking care of it, and they'd let them take care of it. I mean, that's no longer the case, but that was, again— For a whole generation, that was exactly how it was handled. Yeah, totally. So, and church leaders, elders, pastors, et cetera, have to understand that in terms of abuse, church discipline is not a substitute— for their civil responsibilities. Oh, now, now, church not. discipline ought to be a part of that, but that's not the substitute. And and that's where we've seen some Protestant churches get into trouble, is that they think that this can be handled with good church discipline. Well, again, church discipline ought to come to bear on this, but it is no replacement. And and, and that's what the Catholics were kind of saying. Yeah. We're taking care of it We'll ourselves. put this priest over here. We'll yeah. get him some treatment and take care of it. Yeah. And really, let me just say, very rarely do they ever get them treatment. I mean, I, I, I literally, my heart aches for some of the priests who were, they were never confronted with their sin. The church failed them too. And then finally, when it became embarrassing, they just pushed them aside and pushed the problem aside. I, one case in, in Wilmington of a priest who was notorious, they finally had to say, we don't want you a priest anymore. He said, well, hey, pay me to go back to school. They actually paid him to go back to school to teach deaf kids. And he, a few years later, was arrested in Virginia for abusing deaf kids. I mean, but they, you know, that's something in terms of you have to tell the world. I mean, again, there is that whole balancing and there is the risk of being sued for defamation, et cetera. But that's just something that you have to do. Sometimes you have to take those kinds of risks to take a stand for people who are being oppressed. Oh, absolutely. And if he's someone who's powerful, they're going to try to strike Mm -hmm. back at you. Yeah, it's going to be a sacrifice for sure. What are some ways that parents can better protect their children from sexual abuse? Like what kind of questions can we be asking when we're taking our kids to different places? And, you know, one thing I really try to do as a parent is to, to make my presence known, you know, in the places where my children are involved or good communication, you know, with your children what signs to look for, maybe, to see if your child is in a situation that could... Uh, that's a little outside my area of expertise. I can say 
that if you look at it, a common stereotype of victim of abuse is there's an absent father or an absent mother. I mean, a, a strong two-parent household is a great defense. Even in that, you're going to have a child who could be subject to a one-time attack, but it's the child who is lonely sometimes when the parents say, I'll let you take care of this child. That's where the parents, and, and so they go with someone they trust, but they're just kind of lazy. They are turning over parental responsibility. So that's that's what I can see in terms of the- Which is really, it, it happens a lot in the church and not just the, the Roman Catholic church, but, but in Protestant churches as well. And it's sad because uh, I was a youth minister for, for 10 years, and I'm glad that I didn't know everything I know now. <laughs> you know, at that time, or else I would, I would have been terrified, I think, mm-hmm. to be a youth minister. Yeah. Um, well, even but, with the Nasser case, though, it's amazing to think that some of those mothers were right there in the room. Yes. Not knowing what was going on. What was going on. That blows my mind. Like, it's, I'm, I don't blame the parent. I mean, I think. I, I, I started reflecting. I mean, the Bible is saturated with, in a sense, sex abuse because it's a it story is. about a sin. And we have to mm-hmm. realize that. Sin is within the church. I mean, there, there's this idea of the church is this refuge. I mean, I, I can remember a horrible situation of this boy who was abused. His parents adopted two children. They wanted to move away from the city out to the country, the best thing. They were devout Catholics. They actually picked an area in rural Maryland where it actually had a Catholic church, and that's where he was abused, and they they thought, oh, he was safe with the priest. The church is, is not a refuge. I mean, it just goes to show you, like, between Nasser, priests in, in a rural town, like, abusers are going, they're going to be predators, you know, they're going to... Yeah, and if they're skilled at it, it's hard to identify them many times. And a good predator knows how to get into the church, and he knows how to insinuate himself into family situations because they've learned how to do that well. But but, but let me just say one thing that I, in the book On Guard, which I read about, it shows the importance of church membership. Yeah. I mean, predators will come, want to volunteer, want to do this, but they may not want to. Go ahead with the church membership and the real detail there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you mentioned the book On Guard, which is a, a book that we've recommended before uh, by Deepak Reju. That gives some good, wise counsel to churches to help build some appropriate fences there. And there are things churches can do to help mitigate against some of the ways that predators insinuate themselves into situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tangential question, Tom. You, you mentioned earlier on just in passing, you know, the child cannot consent to a sexual activity. Do you see the the machinations of the transgender lobby, the LGBTQ lobby, changing that, corroding that sort of well, rather black and white? One of the things that we're kind of faced with is that we're a very sexualized society right now. And I think we're bearing some of the fruits of the child sex abuse. I think just because of that whole aspect. One of the things early on, there was a push to lower the age of consent, man-boy relationships. Uh, There was a certain excuse, I know sometimes of the Catholic Church, we're really not pedophiles. Pedophiles is you've got to be under the age of puberty, almost excusing the abuse of 12, 13, 14-year-old boys. And there is 
no excuse. It's not just one community or the other. But one of the things I saw in terms of churches was one reason it happened is because other people in the church are sinning sexually with adults. I remember, and this case I actually think of fondly because she had her faith, but a young girl, she was the daughter of assistant minister of a big mega Baptist church. She was being abused at age 12 and 14 by the bus minister. Her father had some suspicion of it, but he didn't want to go there because he was having an affair with the church secretary. I mean, and and didn't want to look. And I remember uh, that uh, she said on her wedding day, she wore black because it was still, even though she married a Christian guy, it was the shame that she still had. And uh, in the Catholic Church at the diocese, I'm certain that the bishop was basically blackmailed because he had a ongoing affair with another adult Catholic priest. And uh, those people who were abusing children knew that, and they had something on them. So I, I think some of the abuse is happening in terms of the rampant non-biblical sex that is going on. Which is abuse of power all yeah, the way around. Yeah. And you see that in the whole Weinstein say, well, some women you know, are trying to have sex to get up there. I mean, it's, and, and right now the culture is wondering, where is consent? I mean, we really need to go well, back and, to and the Bible. And le- that leads me to another question, which is an element in a lot of abuse cases, which often casts suspicion on the victim. And this is the whole element of the grooming aspect. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how that might hurt a criminal case and why it shouldn't as much, too, or a civil case. People will say, well, you know, she didn't have a problem accepting these gifts or she didn't have a problem like even getting this promotion and being treated well. Clearly, this is a consenting relationship. But then there's this grooming aspect, really, where they didn't realize they were walking into abuse. I don't, I don't worry about that in terms of a defense. I mean, it, what it is is that's something that more just guilt of the survivor. Mm-hmm. You know, did did I ask for it? And, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, and and some of the, the ministers, I did so many good things for them. How right. can they turn back? I mean, mm-hmm. there there is that aspect yeah. of it. But yeah, it, it's it, they are adopting their little pet. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what they are doing. Mm-hmm. Well, and oftentimes. I don't know, like the brainwashing that goes in with that kind of grooming treatment, they will return then to their abusers sometimes oh, as well. Totally. Stockholm syndrome. I mean, they're they're trapped mm-hmm. and they go back and forth. And we see this in terms of somebody who was abused at 15 and still at 18, 19 uh, goes back. And, and people have to understand the psychology of that so that they don't then conclude, oh, well, then it must have really been consensual. I mean, you mentioned Stockholm Syndrome. That really is a, a reality there, because once you have this child at a young age, the level of, of power that you have over that child is really significant. It is I mean, I've seen priests who wanted to make certain, uh, pick out who their, their spouse was, to have control over that. I mean, it, it gets really sick in terms of uh, uh, and, sexual activity. And, and, and grown men who were molested by a priest or a pastor as a child who now crumble in fear as grown adult men around this now older man because of the emotional and spiritual power they have. And they, it's not uncommon that 
They'll change their name, flee. I remember somebody who was abused really in the neighborhood where I was, Irish thing. He was in Boston. He just kept hearing too much about that. He fled and lived and died in the place where he wouldn't see churches, Las Vegas. Because there, even the churches don't look like churches there. Yeah. He just couldn't be around Terrible. a church. That is awful. Well, I am just so appreciative of you coming here and giving us some professional insight into this today as well, Tom. Thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us about an important topic that we want to continue to discuss here at Mortification of Spin. And to our listeners, thank you for listening today. And we wanted to offer a chance for you to enter to win a copy of On the Threshold of Hope by Diane Langberg. And this was recommended by Tom. And if you go over to our website at mortificationofspin.org, you can register to win a copy of that. And thanks again for listening. And we always appreciate your prayers and support for the Mortification of Spin. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? And where have you been, my darling young one? I've stumbled on the side of twelve misty mountains I've walked and I've crawled on six crooked highways I've stepped in the middle of seven side forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been ten thousand miles in the mouth of a graveyard And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard range gonna fall Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... You have a pastor of children's preaching, do you, Kevin? <laughs> you pay people to do that stuff. I, I wouldn't expect you to understand these things, but uh, yes, there are some churches that have more than one staff person. <laughs> that interview is next time. Join us then. Join us then.